Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Rena Jadav here from Health Bootcamps, and today it is my true honor to have with us a brilliant physician, best-selling author, creator of the famous scientifically backed program to reverse heart disease through diet and lifestyle, Dr. Dean Ornish. Dr. Dean, welcome. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. So I have to definitely share a little bit more about you. Now, Dr. Dean Ornish is also the president of the nonprofit Preventative Medicine Research Institute in Sausalito. But you know what he's most famous for is being the personal physician consultant to former President Bill Clinton, who, by the way, looks very fit. He was on news the other day, and he looks pretty fit. I think he's continuing with your diet, Dr. Dr. Ornish. Yeah, he's been on it for the last... Well, I actually began working with him back in 93 uh-huh. when he became president, and I was introduced to Hillary Clinton. We met for an hour at the White House, and at the end of the meeting, she said, we went through our research, she said, you know, would you train the chefs who cook for us? And I said... Say that again. <laughs> said, well, of course, I'd be honored. So we ended up training the White House chefs, the Camp David chefs, the Air Force One chefs, the Navy Mesh chefs. And then they asked me to be one of his consulting physicians. So when he'd have his uh, annual physical exam at the Bethesda Naval Hospital, I'd come in for that. And then we just became friends, and uh, I continued to work with him as a consultant. And then about nine years ago, when his bypasses clogged up, uh, he was told that it was all in his genes. And I said, you know, it's actually not all in your genes. I sent him an email. Uh, and I say that not to blame, but to empower you, because if it's all in the genes, you know, you're just a victim and you're one of the most powerful guys on the planet. You're hardly a victim. So we met and he went on uh, the whole foods plant-based diet that we found that can reverse not only heart disease, but so many other conditions. And he's done very well with it. And, uh, you know, I think whatever your politics, when a former president of the United States, particularly one who was known for not eating particularly uh, healthy foods, makes these changes for almost a decade now and benefits so well from that. I think that really sets a great example for everyone. Absolutely. And then you went on to become an Obama appointee to the White House Advisory Group as well. Yes, I was appointed by President Clinton to a White House Advisory Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy and by President Obama to this commission called the White House Presidential Advisory Group on uh, Integrative Health, uh, Public Health and Preventive Medicine. So I feel very uh, grateful for those opportunities. Absolutely. When you've been so amazing in your research, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but the first thing I want to mention is the fact that the Ornish diet has been named the number one best heart healthy diet by the U.S. News and World Report seven years in a row. And we're going to talk about the Spectrum today. This is a Spectrum book series interview, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Ornish diet too. Now, you believe that chronic disease can be reversed, and your recent talk uh, change your lifestyle, change your genes was very inspiring because I feel like we live in this healthcare system that often says, well, did your parents have it? Well, no wonder you have it. Or, you know, they sort of tend to blame genetics yeah. as the cause for why someone got heart disease. Or like in my case, you know, when I had colon cancer, the first thing all the experts said is, oh, it must run in your family. No, it doesn't. No one on either sides of my family had ever had cancer. I was the first. And then they were stumped, like they didn't know what to say after that. Mm. Uh, but you were the first one to say, no, it's not true. And that, you know, we can absolutely reverse chronic disease. We absolutely can get back in, 
back our health in our own hands. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's get started with what prompted you to write The Spectrum? Well, let me uh, comment on a couple of things you just said first, and then we'll get into that. The first is that um, it's not my belief, it's my experience. Um, Jonas Salk once said, I don't have faith, or Joseph Campbell once said, I don't have faith, I have experience. Or in my case, I have 40 years of research to show that. And I think what sets our work apart from others is that there are a lot of conflicting claims out there. You know, everyone's got an opinion about diet because we all have to eat. But 40 years ago, I made a conscious decision to say, you know, the whole point of science is to figure out what's true and what isn't and what works and what doesn't and for whom and under what circumstances. So I spent a lot of my time the last 40 years doing randomized trials and demonstration projects to try to figure that out. And it's, it's, it's a very powerful way of kind of cutting through a lot of things that may sound good, but really when you actually test them, uh, may not be. And one of them you mentioned is that so often people say things, oh, I've just got bad genes, what can I do? And, uh, you know, and what we've learned is that our genes are a predisposition, but our genes are not our fate. And that even if your mother and father and sister and brother and aunts and uncles all died early from, say, heart disease, there's no reason that you need to. It just means that you need to make bigger changes in order to prevent that or even to reverse it than someone else had. And so the Spectrum really, book really came out of doing all these studies, which was that in all of the studies, um, I thought incorrectly, as it turned out, that the younger patients who had less severe disease would do better when they changed their lifestyle. And it turned out it wasn't how old they were, it wasn't how sick they were, it was simply a function of one thing, which was how much they changed their diet and lifestyle. And the more they changed, the more they improved, both in how they felt, which makes it a kind of a virtuous, positive cycle, as you start to make changes in your lifestyle and you feel better and it comes out of your own experience, you literally connect the dots between what you do and how you feel. It's like, oh, when I eat this or I do this or I don't do that, I feel good. When I do that, I don't feel so good. So maybe I'll do more of this and less of that. And then it comes out of your own experience, so you believe that. But also we found in every metric we looked at, every endpoint measure, the more you change your diet and lifestyle, the more you improve, whether it was the amount of blockages in your arteries, the amount of the prostate cancer. We found these same lifestyle changes not only could slow or can only reverse heart disease, but could also in the only in the first and only randomized trial, which we did in collaboration with the chair of urology at UCSF and the chair at Sloan Kettering at the time. Uh, one of the things we've learned is that if you're doing something disruptive, it's good to work with the people who are considered the, the thought leaders and the most credible uh, physicians and scientists. We found these same lifestyle changes that could reverse heart disease, could slow, stop, and reverse the progression of men with early stage prostate cancer and by extension women with breast cancer. We found that type 2 diabetes can be reversed, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity. You know, so often when people get put on drugs to lower their blood pressure or their cholesterol or their blood sugar, and they say, doctor, how long do I have to take this? What does the doctor usually say? Like forever, right? It's like exactly. sometimes when I lecture, I show a cartoon I've been showing for decades, really, which has been a guiding principle for me, which is what's the cause? A group of doctors busily mopping up the floor around a sink that's overflowing, but nobody's turning off the faucet. Exactly. So it's like, how long do I have to mop up the floor? Like forever. Like, well, why don't we turn off the faucet? And to a much larger degree than we once realized, the faucet, the underlying cause of so many of these chronic diseases, are what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, how much love and support we have. We're to reduce it down to its essence, to eat well, move more, stress less, love more. Boom, that's it. Mm -hmm. And the more diseases we study, and the more underlying biological mechanisms we look at, the more reasons we have to explain why these simple changes are so powerful and how quickly they can occur. We found that <clears throat> these same lifestyle changes could reverse uh, not only heart disease and diabetes and prostate cancer, but could actually 
we wonder what some of the mechanisms might be to explain that. So we looked at their genes, as we talked about earlier. And we found that in just three months, over 500 genes were changed. In effect, upregulating or turning on the genes that keep us healthy, downregulating or turning off the genes that cause so many of these mechanisms that are involved in so many of these chronic diseases, chronic uh, inflammation, oxidative stress, uh, apoptosis, uh, changes in the microbiome, changes in angiogenesis, and so on. And so the more diseases we looked at and the more of these mechanisms we look at, the more reasons we have to explain why these simple changes are so powerful and how quickly people can get better. We also found, we did a study with um, Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, who got the Nobel Prize for her pioneering work with telomeres. And telomeres are the ends of our chromosomes that control how long we live. They're a little like the plastic tips on the ends of your shoelace that keep your shoelace from unraveling. They actually keep our DNA from unraveling. And as we get older, as they replicate, they tend to get shorter and shorter. And as our telomeres get shorter, our lives get shorter. And the risk of premature death from pretty much everything goes up correspondingly. We found for the first time that in just three months, the telomerase, the enzyme that repairs and lengthens telomeres, went up by 30%, which we published in The Lancet. And we found after five years, they actually got longer for the first time. In a sense, when The Lancet published this, they called it reversing aging at a cellular level. Wow. And when we share our gene expression studies, we did that with uh, Craig Venter, the first to decode uh -huh. the genome. Yeah. And we were about to publish the first studies from the same lifestyle changes can downregulate angiogenesis, which is uh, another mechanism that's involved in all these things. Yeah. So the spectrum idea came from this finding that the more you change, the more you improve at any age, which is really a very empowering and, uh, and, and motivating finding to say it's never too late to begin making these changes, however, whatever age you are. And so if you're trying to reverse a life-threatening condition, that's the pound of cure. You know, that's why we were the first to prove all these things, because people didn't go far enough. But if you're otherwise healthy and you just want to lose a few pounds or see if you can get your cholesterol or your blood pressure weighed down, it's not all or nothing. You have a spectrum of choices. And so the more you change, the more you improve. And part of what I learned, I, I chaired uh, Google Health with Marissa Meyer years ago, mm -hmm. uh, 10 years ago, and we were trying to come up with these really complex algorithms for <clears throat> personalizing a diet and lifestyle program. And it, it got so clunky and I started saying, you know, you know, you know what, so we're making this so complex, we should make this radically simple because it is yeah. really radically simple. You know, we tend to think it has to be complex or a new drug or a new laser or something really high, a new device to be powerful. And we've- Something I mean, I think, that can be commercialized, right? Exactly, yeah, something you can make money at. Yeah. And I think our unique contribution has been to use these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very simple and low-tech and low-cost interventions can be. So what we found was that instead of making radically, making it so complex, make it radically simple. And we've also learned, I also learned that, you know, by making mistakes along the way and learning from them, I used to tell people, you know, eat this and don't eat that and do this and don't do that. And they'd immediately want to do the opposite. You know, <laughs> yes. That's even more than being healthy. We want to feel free and in control. And as soon as I tell somebody what to do, they want to do the opposite. It goes back to the first dietary intervention, you know, when God said, don't eat the apple, and that didn't go so well. And that was God exactly, God. exactly. So, and the other thing I've learned is that fear is not a very good motivator. At least it's not a sustainable motivator. It's a great motivator for like a month or six weeks after you've been diagnosed with something bad. You'll do pretty much anything that they tell you, but then people stop doing it. And the reason is that, you know, we all know we're going to die someday, but it's not something we think about most of the time, except maybe when you've had a heart attack or something that's kind of broken through that denial, but even then only for like a month or so. And so efforts to try to motivate people to change out of fear are not really sustainable. But what is sustainable is pleasure and joy and love and support and yeah. feeling good. 
And because these underlying biological mechanisms are so dynamic, when you make these changes, to the degree you make them, you feel so much better so quickly, it reframes the reason for making them from fear of dying, which is not sustainable, to joy and pleasure and feeling that which are. And the other thing we've learned, which you, you mentioned when we, before we just started doing this interview, is that when you did these things, it really gave you a sense of meaning and purpose. You know, like why do, like one of the doctors told you like, okay, if you get better, what are you gonna do with your life, you know? And you've made your life to, which I love, is to increase awareness. Because to me, awareness is always the first step in healing, which you're doing so beautifully with these podcasts and YouTubes and so on. And so the awareness is really important. But the meaning is important too. So when you do this work, I, I presume that gives you a sense of meaning, doesn't it? Absolutely. And what I find is that that's an important part of getting better. You know, this goes all the way back to Viktor Frankl's uh, pioneering work, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. You know, we're about concentration camp survivors. You know, you have some survived and some didn't, but it wasn't necessarily the strongest or the healthiest that survived. It, you could have two people in the same bunker, one lived and one didn't, and it wasn't always the one that was the strongest or healthiest. It was usually the one who had the strongest sense of meaning and purpose. I have to survive so that I can, and you fill in the blank, you know, yes. uh, be reunited with my loved ones or bear witness or whatever it happened to be. So I often ask, I mean, I always ask patients now who come to see me or who go through the, the program that we've, you know, we're training in hospitals and clinics and physician groups around the country and Medicare and most insurance companies are paying for it. We'll come back to that. But I always say, why do you want to live longer? People go, gosh, really? No one's ever asked me that before. And then I go, hmm, I don't know. I want to watch my kids grow up. I want to dance at their wedding. I want to walk them down the aisle. I want to write a book. I want to make love with my spouse or whatever it happens to be, you know, and if you can get people in touch with that sense of meaning, yes. which is really the antithesis of depression, you know, the real epidemic in our culture isn't just heart disease or diabetes, it's loneliness and depression and isolation, you know, and I, I was suicidally depressed when I was in college. That was my doorway into all this, this uh, area, which uh, I'm helping to create this field of what's called lifestyle medicine, just to use, Lifestyle changes not only to help prevent, but actually to treat and even reverse those common chronic diseases. And so we have to not just give people information or even focus on the behavior. We need to work with these deeper issues, which often are depression and loneliness and isolation. Because telling somebody who's lonely and depressed, I mean, if you told me when I was 19 and I was ready to kill myself that I was going to live longer if I just, you know, did these lifestyle changes, I'd say, you don't get it. You know, I'm, I'm just, I don't know if I want to get through the day. And so we have to focus not just on the behaviors. I mean, if, if information were enough, nobody would smoke. It's not like people, like, I, I didn't know smoking was bad for me, you know. So I'd ask people, I'd say, why do you smoke or overeat or drink too much or work too hard or abuse substances? You know, we have this opioid epidemic and so on. Absolutely. Behaviors, I'd say, seem so maladaptive. And they'd say, they're not maladaptive. You don't get it. They're very adaptive because they, yes. they help us deal with our pain, our loneliness, our depression. You know, a few weeks ago, um, the, the Minister of Loneliness was appointed in the, in the United Kingdom, you know. That's right. I had several meetings with uh, Vivek Murthy when he was the uh, Surgeon General, and um, he was going to make, uh, well, he did make loneliness and, and the disruption of social networks um, one of those two major focus of, of his tenure as, as Surgeon General. I think there's a growing awareness that, you know, I wrote a book about this uh, that preceded the spectrum back in 1998 called Love and Survival mm -hmm. that reviewed what were then hundreds, and now thousands of studies showing that people who are lonely and depressed are, are many times more likely to get sick and die prematurely than those who have a sense of love and connection and community. Uh, I, in fact, having gone through my experience, realized that the way we've been going about addressing our health crisis, not the health care crisis, the health crisis is yeah. actually upside down. Yeah. And in fact, I created something called a health pyramid. 
uh, we've had the food pyramid, but I actually think it's the health pyramid. And the health pyramid, the base of my health pyramid is in fact calm and in feeling like you're in control, like the second phase of calm is feeling like you're in control, yeah. like you're satisfied, like your joy is to be here. And then it's sleep and then it's actually joy. And yes. to your point, I, I personally believe that if those three foundations are not strong, everything else just topples. Why? Because you end up having cravings. You end yeah. up having addictions. You know, when you ask someone why you smoke and you dig deep enough, you ask the question why five times. And it always comes down to some sort of a base feeling of I'm going to get fired or I'm going to get seized and my parents are going to hate me or, you know, whatever that is. And we're starting to see a lot more depression and mental illness in the teen group, in the college group. Yeah. And lifestyle has a lot to do with it. You know, sleeping incredibly late or not sleeping or sleeping four or five hours and thinking that somehow your body is going to thrive on that mode of, of lack of repair. So I think the point you make is just so important. And you know, uh, anyone who's watching this or listening to this, please check out the health pyramid as well in terms of the article and the thoughts behind it. And, and you know, to what Dr. Ornish is now sharing, because I think diet is instrumental, but not if your foundation is weak. Well, it's true. And I'd ask people, you know, why are you doing these things? And they say, because they help me deal with my pain, my loneliness, my depression. It's the top of your pyramid, if you will. Yes. I've got, I've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes and they're always there for me and nobody else is. You're going to take away my 20 friends? What are you going to give me? Exactly. Or, or food fills that void or yes. a well-known food writer told me fat coats my nerves and numbs the pain or video yeah. games numb the pain or opioids or alcohol numb the pain or working all the time is a more socially acceptable way of numbing the pain. You did five startups. You have a pretty good sense of, of, of how effective that is and kind of at least yes. temporarily numbing or distancing yourself from that. But, and what we've learned is that the pain is not the problem. The pain's the messenger. It's saying, hey, listen up, pay attention. You're not doing something that's in your best interest. And so in your life, you used your pain, your illness, as a doorway for transforming your life that not only got you back to where you were before, but actually took you so much further in terms of what really matters in life. And so that to me is really uh, what, what's key is that we, we need to help people get in touch with that. And it goes even deeper. You know, we, we use meditation. I mean, my program is basically a whole foods plant-based diet that's naturally low in fat and carbs. It's not one or the other. Meditation and yoga, mm -hmm. uh, moderate exercise, and what we call uh, social support, which is really love and intimacy, or to reduce it down to its essence, to eat well, move more, stress less, love more. Boom, that's it. But within that, the stress less, it's not just the stress, you know, the ancient swamis and rabbis and priests and monks and nuns didn't develop meditation and so on to unclog their arteries or get their blood pressure down or whatever. It can do all those things yeah. or help you perform better if you're an elite athlete. They're really powerful tools for quieting down our mind and body enough to experience more of an inner sense of peace and joy and well-being, where healing occurs at its deepest level in my limited uh, experience. And that is that these techniques in meditation, they don't bring you a sense of peace or well-being or even health that it's our nature to be healthy and peaceful until we disturb it. Yes. It's a very different concept than what so much of our, our Western culture teaches us. I mean, the whole advertising industry is based on the idea that if only you have a successful startup, if only I can get into medical school, if only you have more whatever, more money, more power, more beauty, more accomplishment, more sex, whatever, if only I have what I don't have, then I'd be happy, then I'd be healthy, then I wouldn't feel so stressed. Now, once you set up that way of looking at the world, However, it turns out you're going to feel bad, I mean, even though when you think about it like that, because until you get it, you're stressed, like, boy, I hope I get it. 
And since we know the stress comes not just from what we do, but how we react to what we do, the stakes go up. Because it's not just winning or losing. It's like being a winner or a loser. If you don't get it, and losers, nobody wants to be with, right? So if you don't get it, you're stressed. If someone else gets it, then you're really stressed. And it makes you feel like we live in this dog-eat-dog, zero-sum game world. Uh, and even if you don't get it, I mean, and even if you do get it, I should say, there's this, it's very seductive. It's like, ah, I got it. Now I'm good. I'm happy. But then it generally doesn't last. It's exactly. usually followed by... Well, now what? It doesn't really provide what I thought it would, or so what? Big deal. It doesn't really provide that lasting sense of meaning. So people say, well, okay, well, that didn't do it, but maybe this will. So you, people say things like, I make sure I've got a dozen projects going at the same time so I can immediately shift my attention to something else. So when you meditate and you quiet down your mind and you experience that sense of inner peace, it's important to remind yourself that that's our natural state, that we are born with a sense of ease until we get diseased, you know. I studied for many decades with a, an ecumenical teacher named Swami Satchidananda. People say, what are you, a Hindu? He'd say, no, I'm an undo. You know? <laughs> and the idea is that these things don't bring you that, that we have it already. It's, and it, in one of the great ironies of life, that we end up, the process of running after all the things that we think we need to make us peaceful end up disturbing what we already have if we just stop doing that. And so then that really reframes what we do so that um, the paradox is that when I was a you know, freshman in college, I could take all the meaning out of everything. That's why I got so suicidally depressed. You know, who cares? Why bother? So what? Nothing matters. Big deal. All those kinds of existential angst, you might say. But later I realized that just like I can take all the meaning out, I can imbue my choices with meaning. And one way to do that is to consciously choose not to eat certain foods or not to or be in a monogamous relationship or whatever you're choosing not to do because what you gain is so much more than what you give up. And so... You know, all religions have dietary guidelines, and they're all different from each other. But I think what the reason is, is that just the act of choosing not to do something that you otherwise could do imbues those choices with meaning. There's a wonderful story that my friend uh, Rachel Remen talks about in a book she wrote called Kitchen Table Wisdom about three people who are building a, a cathedral. And one says, oh, I'm chopping stone, you know, I've been doing this till the day I die. It's horrible life. Another one says, I'm, I'm doing this work so I can get paid so I can provide for my family who I love so dearly. And the third one says, I'm building this cathedral that will inspire people for thousands of years to come. You know, it's the same work, but what meaning do we do with those changes? And it makes all the difference, not only in the quality of our life, but even our survival. Because, you know, the more lonely and depressed you are, you're three to 10 times more likely to get sick and die prematurely. So the Spectrum book was based on this finding that the more you change, the more you improve. And people don't like to be told what to do. So if you don't have a life-threatening illness, again, I want to emphasize, if you do have a life-threatening condition, you really do have to make these big changes. It's the pound of cure. But if you don't, you know, what matters most is your overall way of eating and living. So if you indulge yourself one day, eat healthier the next. If you don't have time to exercise one day, do a little more the next. If you don't have time to meditate for an hour, do it for a minute. Whatever you do, there's yeah. a benefit. Yeah. And then if you begin to experience that benefit, then you get into these virtuous cycles like, you know, oh, when I do this, I feel good. When I do that, I don't feel so good. So let me do more of this and less of that. And then it comes out of your own experience, not because some book or doctor told you, but rather you literally connect the dots between what you do and how you, you control feel. your own health. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one thing that you just said, I want to emphasize that I, I really do believe that it's our culture that's killing us. It is. I didn't realize to what extent until... When I got sick, I got into meditation in a big way because I, had, I realized that if I didn't detach myself from my symptoms, I'd never get in the healed zone. So, okay, how am I going to fool myself into thinking I'm healthy again when I can see my 28 symptoms? And 
I really liked uh, Sadhguru. He's someone who's out of India and he's out there spreading his light. And I, I had watched his videos on YouTube and I sort of really fell in love with you know, what he was trying to say. And one of the things he said really resonated with me. And I think for everyone out there that's sick, that's trying to reverse something, find someone that resonates with you and follow that, right? Because it's yes. for everyone, something different resonates. Yes. For me, what resonated was this very simple statement he said, which he said, someone asked him, well, why am I even here? What's the purpose of life? Which your point, I think we all go through at some point. And he said, yeah, the purpose of life is just to be, to enjoy. This is, you, you're born here almost as a gift. Like, why do you need to do anything else? Yes. You're, you're meant to enjoy life. And yes. his big <laughs> mantra is you got to get up and you got to go play. Like he's big into play. Yes. You got to go play. You know, I went to a couple of his um, long sort of meditation retreats and playing is a big part of it. And I'm not, I haven't played in years. I've been decades, you know, chasing yeah. the ball. Who has time for that? Yeah, well, you know, the, that's the spiritual teachers I'm most attracted to are the ones who are, lead a happy life. You know, the Dalai Lama said, uh, my religion is happiness, you know, yes. because they have found that although we tend to think of spirituality as being kind of dry and musty and moldy and boring, that's the way you live. It's been found. That's how you live a joyful life. Yes. You're born. My, my teacher liked to make puns, as I mentioned. He, he said, we're born fine and we define ourselves by getting stuck in all these definitions that separate us from other people. I'm this, I'm that. Yes. You know, we have a lot of this going on in the political arena now that once you demonize someone else as being fundamentally different than you, the other, then you can do bad things to them. Those Muslim rapists, those terrorists, you know, whatever. Um, and to me, the, the, the essence of healing is that on one level we're separate, but on another level we're part of something larger that connects us. Whatever name you give to that, even to give it a name is to limit what's basically an ineffable experience. And meditation and other you know, prayer and other uh, techniques uh, can, can give you that direct experience of that interconnectedness. And all the things that flow from that, you know, altruism and love and compassion and forgiveness, which is what Aldous Huxley referred to as the uh, perennial philosophy, you find in all spiritual paths, once you get past the differences that people fight and kill each other over, you know, it's the sense that we are already interconnected with each other. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 those, and that's what allows us to lead a happy life, is that you realize you have that already, and then you can go out and really just play. You know, it's kind of like exactly. you know, the, watching a movie, you know, that we are the light behind the projector as well as all the images that are projected on that. And you can really only play with that at the deepest level if you really can experience both. And so to me, illness and suffering in general are, can be a doorway for transforming our lives in the most powerful ways by giving us, by even asking those questions, which, I mean, you're a perfect example of that, you know, that if you hadn't gone through this experience, you'd be doing what you were doing before, and you're probably a lot happier now than you were then, if I'm, if I'm hearing you correct. Absolutely. I am healthier, happier, more energetic, more joy. I haven't had coffee in over two years, yes. no alcohol, and I jump out of bed in the morning, you know, exactly. so. That's the purpose as well, and you feel so good. Oh, absolutely. And, and so um, that's, that's why I love doing this work, because, you know, we're all going to die. It's just a question of when. And so that for me, it's not just how long we live, but how well we live. Because like I say, who wants to live longer if you're not having fun? That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.